Well, Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas? Yeah. Did you get any new gifts? Any good gifts? No. Nobody got any good gifts. I got an Apple Watch from my kids. I thought that was a really nice gift. Yeah, good Brendan, right. Yeah, it was nice until this morning. I was looking at it in the kitchen and our youngest child, Jesse, he was getting a bagel and toasting it, putting the cream cheese on. And, um, and there's a, a part of the, of the Apple Watch that kind of monitors your, your health throughout the day. And it will tap you and tell you to stand up, and it'll tell you when to take a nice deep breath in the middle of the day. And so I tapped on the Breathe app, and I was taking a moment in the kitchen, and I was just taking a moment to breathe. And I had my eyes closed. I was taking a deep breath this morning, and Jesse said, what are you doing? I said, I'm breathing. The, the Apple Watch tells me when to breathe. He goes, what am I supposed to do? I don't have an Apple Watch. What am I supposed to know how to breathe? <laughs> uh, no, but Christmas was great. We had, um, we had some good time with our family. Although I have to admit, after about five days, we were all ready. Right, Brendan? We were all ready to just come back and be with other people. So, no, it was good. It wasn't Brendan that I was trying to get away from. Um, I just want to say welcome today. We have some new students with us, right? Yeah. We are glad that you're here. Met some of you yesterday, pointing to someone over here. Yeah. Here, I can see your faces. We're really glad that you're here today with us, part of our community. I just wanted to quickly catch you up on what we've been walking through this year, we've been leaning into living as the beloved community. We're learning what some of the marks are, the characteristics of a community that, that, a community that lives from this truth, that regardless of who you are, of what you do, of what you have or do not have, regardless of what others say about you or what has happened to you, that you and I are the beloved sons and daughters of God. Amen? And together we live as the beloved community. So today we are in John chapter 12. We've been working our way through John. And today we're in John chapter 12. And we're going to read about the mark of beauty left by a person with no voice, literally no seat at the table. But she will not let the rules of social interaction prevent her from contributing beauty to the beloved community where she has perceived Jesus has been living this out in front of them, even when the disciples around him have completely missed the boat. She has perceived it, and she is going to contribute beauty to that today. What is beauty, and who decides what is beautiful? What looks beautiful? What sounds beautiful? What even tastes beautiful? So I decided to get some friends to help me answer this difficult question. We're going to watch them now. Yay. 
So we're going to talk about beauty today. So the first thing, beauty. Beauty, things that are beautiful. Okay, so the first thing I want you to do is close your eyes and think about something that's beautiful with your eyes closed. Keep them closed. Okay, and I want you to, with your eyes closed, describe to us what you are thinking about. Everett, what are you thinking about with your eyes closed? Uh, beautiful sunsets that God makes. Cool. Titus? Uh, a flower. Aria? I think that a heart is... Can something smell beautiful? Yeah, flower. Honey, I'm gonna do flower. Like flowers smell good? Mm -hmm. Flowers smell beautiful. What else? And roses. Roses. What about brownies? Oh, yeah. They smell beautiful. Who decides what's beautiful? I'm going to do same as him. Beauty is in the eye of the... World. World? Beauty is in the eye of the... World. Colors? Colors? Beauty is in the eye of the... Beautiful colors. Um, rose? Or stinky feet? <laughs> that was a lot of fun, yeah. Although I have to admit, I think there's some coaching going on in advance with some of those kids. The Kirksey twins were there, Titus and Everett. And I can just imagine, is Jeff here today? I don't want to call him out. I mean, it's okay if he's not. But uh, I think he, maybe he coached them and said, you're going in to see the chaplain. You know, so any answer like God, Jesus, the Lord, they sometimes said it in unison, the Lord. <laughs> right? They were coached that way. The Cherry Twins, on the other hand, <laughs> but it kind of went like this. Well, can I just tell a story? I was at Dad's mom's house, and she gave me some chicken noodle soup, and we're going to swimming lessons today. <laughs> yeah, no coaching. I appreciate it, Chris. You just came in honest. Yeah. In the 1930s, Maximilian Faktorowicz. Maximilian Faktorowicz. Polish, if you didn't guess. A Polish businessman, an entrepreneur, an inventor, devised the beauty micrometer, which measured symmetry, measured symmetry, one of the properties that our brains use to determine if something is beautiful. Right? The beauty micrometer. There's a picture of it. It's a device that he would put over the head of someone to measure symmetry on their face, okay? 
And, uh, and he would make marks on the face. They would take the device off and use shading or makeup to give the illusion of symmetry when it didn't exist. Mr. Maximilian Faktorowicz went on to create a line of makeup. You know it today by his name, Max Factor, a multi-billion dollar company. Beauty, his idea of beauty. Architecture uses symmetry to create beautiful buildings. The Taj Mahal is a building of perfect symmetry. And the Parthenon in Greece uses a mathematical number, Garrett Edinger, a mathematical number. I was so proud of myself to find out that there is a beautiful number. It's called the golden number. And they used it when they built the Parthenon to create a perfect structure. That was beautiful. Beauty, art, music, nature, form. These are philosophical, theological, sociological, physical, and psychological qualities, virtues. It is a complicated matter, beauty. And in our scripture reading today, Jesus will not back away from it. So the story is from John 12, and they are in Bethany, and it is just six days before the Passover feast. The next day after this chapter, uh, after what occurs in this story is written, uh, Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and begin Holy Week as we know it. And so here they are in Bethany in the hometown of Lazarus, if you remember from Last semester, that was the last uh, story we looked at, the mark of suffering with and compassion. And so Lazarus has now been alive for about a month after being raised from the dead. They're in Bethany. They're at the home of Simon, a neighbor of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And someone, or Simon, has thrown them a supper party. Martha is at her place. She is in the kitchen serving the meal. Lazarus now finds himself lounging, reclining at the table with the disciples who were there. And Mary has found her place again, familiar to us. She is at, she's going to come into the scene at the feet of Jesus. In this day, in this culture, in this picture, the, what was normal was for men to hold seats at the table. What was normal was for men to have voice at the table, to have power and make the rules and decisions about what was acceptable and unacceptable. In this culture, women are not students at the feet of Jesus. And yet, we find Mary there again, sitting at an appropriate place for a student at the feet of Jesus, not for a woman. The men are sitting around and they're reclining. And then we read verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. In the following verses, the disciples, especially Judas, will question her actions in that moment, inferring a scandal that she has created, not only by the extravagance 
of what she has done, because for sure, this bottle of nard is the most expensive thing, the most valuable thing that her family owns. The extravagance of what she has done. They will also question uh, the way that she has done it. She has taken her hair down a sign of or gesture of intimacy, even provocative. If you know what's coming in chapter 13, it is not difficult to see the similarities. There will be a meal, and there will be a person on the floor washing the feet in a scandal to the disciples. The Messiah, the Son of God, will do this in the next chapter. So the reaction of the men sitting at the table is probably what, what we could expect there, right? Um, they are indignant. They are disgusted, especially Judas, who tries to prove her wrong for what she's done selfishly because he would have benefited, right? We find out from John he would have benefited from the sale of the perfume and the money would have gone to their money box and he was pilfering money out of that. By the end of verse 3, it, it leaves something there with us. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You can even sense it lingering there, this moment of beauty created by Mary, a person without a seat, a person without a voice, a person without power or the ability to create norms or rules in that day. And yet she does not allow the categories assigned to her, her nameless, voiceless, seatless, powerless, worthless place to which she has been assigned. She doesn't allow that to prevent her from contributing a moment of beauty in this beloved community that's gathered for supper that evening the place to which they would have assigned her would have been the kitchen or the bedroom. And she refuses to remain relegated to those places. Jesus' words in response to her in 7 and 8, leave her alone. He's looking at Judas when he says these words, leave her alone, let her keep it the day of my burial and then he looks he changes the pronoun and he addresses the entire room that is there for you will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me I think it's interesting that Jesus tells Judas allow her to keep it what is he saying she should keep she has already poured out all of the perfume on his feet Commentaries are confused by these words. They've dissected it and pulled it apart. What is it that Jesus is saying? Leave her alone. Let her have this. I believe what Jesus is saying is let her have this moment. This moment where she has broken out of the category that we assigned her to. Let's give her this moment where she contributed beauty to us. Let's give her this moment. Let's give ourselves this moment. Because in just a few days, I will not be with you 
any longer. When someone we love dies, right? I remember the phone call I got when my father died. It was uh, Valentine's Day, 1996. I remember the call from my mom, and she said my dad had passed away. And immediately my mind went back to what was our last moment together. What was that last conversation? What was the last thing he said to me and I said to him? And this is what Jesus is protecting in the moment. Let yourselves, let Mary have this last moment with me in remembrance of my burial, which is coming. People like Mary are compelling to us. People who are willing to go against what cultural norms say are appropriate. Uh, people willing to question the rules, uh, which designate specific actions and put people in specific boxes and categories. I'm married to a person uh, who likes to um, push the norms of society, of boxes and categories. Uh, Larry, about 10 years ago, uh, he was trying to save our family some money, and so he was exploring some different ways to commute to work. Um, he had carpooled for about a year with a friend, and um, so we had saved money throughout that year. We said, I'm, I'm going to try and do something different. So in Kansas City, whose public transportation system is terrible, uh, he tried to take a bus from our house 13 miles to his workplace. It took three hours. So he went from suburban Kansas to downtown Kansas City, transferred to another bus, which took him to north Kansas City, which then he transferred to another bus and then into the workplace. So it didn't work. So he thought, I'm going to try something different. And outside of what society would say is normal or acceptable, commute to work, Larry went to the, um, the Segway rental building. <laughs> yeah. Now, Larry, I think his motto in life is, if you can have fun while you're doing it, do that. Always have fun. That's why we own a Jeep, right? If he has to drive to work, why not drive to work in a Jeep, right? You might as well have fun while you're doing it. So he goes to the, the Segway rental company. He rents a Segway, and he puts it in our car. We only had one car, and brings it home. And uh, we all take turns trying the Segway out in our driveway. And, and at 7 o'clock the next morning, Larry straps on his backpack and buckles his, um, his helmet, buckle under his chin, and gets on the Segway for 13 miles across Kansas City, right? Outside of societal norms, right? People don't drive Segways to work. I, not that I know of. Not that I know of. He did it for three days, right? We went, he would take it to work. He had to recharge it once he got there, and then he would Segway all the way back home. You know when people ask the question of you, what's your most embarrassing moment? That's what this was for me. <laughs> Not for Larry. No. No, I had a neighbor, and she stopped me, and she said, Lynn, did I see Larry on a Segway with a helmet? 
going down 87th Street Parkway in Lenexa? It's like, yes, that was Larry. My most embarrassing moment. <laughs> yeah. No, people like Mary and Larry, they inspire us, don't they? They defy the categories assigned to us, assigned to what is appropriate. Like Larry, Mary could care less at this point about what is appropriate. This is perhaps her last moment with Jesus, and she senses it, right? The pastor and author, his name is Brian Zond, he shares it this way, that this love demonstrated toward Mary from Jesus in this moment, this love in the person of Jesus encountered in his life, in his teachings, in his cross. This love is the beauty that will change the world. ENC, who are we? Who are we this morning? What categories have been assigned to us that are holding us back from living as the beloved community? Have you been categorized in this community as someone small? or insignificant? Have you been given a label in our society that says you are dangerous, you are difficult, you are lazy? Do you have a seat? Do you have a voice at the table in our community? Do we have a voice in our city? Do we have a voice in our church? Do we have a voice in the world of Nazarene colleges? Who are you? Who are we? This morning, ENC, I dare you. I dare you to care less about what is holding you back from living as the beloved son and daughter of God. I dare you. ENC, I dare us to live above social categories because the truth is that I can only be me if I exist in relationship with you. Without students, there are no professors. Without sons and daughters, there are no mothers and fathers. Without you, there is no me. And if there is no diversity between us, there is no us. It is that beautiful African construct of Ubuntu. I am because we are. I dare you. I dare us to care less, to care less about the religious or political or social classifications of the evangelical church narrative that has gone awry, that tells us that diversity is too difficult to navigate, that human sexuality is too taboo, that charitable discourse does not exist in Christian communities like ours. I dare us to pour out beauty. I dare us into the spaces 
of our beloved community through words and actions inspired by a God of love. These moments of beauty, if you dare to do them, they will linger with us. They will permeate the space of our community. I dare you to reflect the image of Christ, the beauty that will save our world. I dare say that if we fail to speak out, to live out lives of love, even nature and all of creation will protest, even the mountains will bow and the rocks will cry out, this, this is love, this Jesus, this way of life. It is the beauty that will save us, that will save our world.